Today is Friday, June 15th, 2018. Time for episode 53 of the Barnhart Podcast. Good news, Anne. No threat of nuclear war with North Korea. Okay. Our kayfaber in chief met with their kayfaber in chief and they kayfabed about something and the, the media was thoroughly confused because they weren't sure if they were being kayfabed or they were supposed to lie about the kayfabe. It was very confusing for them. Well, the media was actually bitter. They're like embittered now that they might actually at some point in the indeterminate future have to credit Trump with actually accomplishing something. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. All I get is... All I see is bitterness, bitterness that uh, that things are happening with North Korea and Dennis Rodman crying. That was very moving. We probably all saw that this week. And Dennis um, Rodman just, of of the if you remember the vintage of him wearing a wedding dress. I forget the context of that, but I don't he, remember the context either. But I remember I remember Dennis Rodman when he was actually a basketball player and just crazy as a loon. And I don't know if you watch that video of him that came out, I guess it was within the last week, he had gone on a trip to North Korea for some inexplicable reason. And, you know, you think, okay, this guy's absolutely crazy. What the hell is he doing? But, you know, he gave an interview this past week and it it was actually quite compelling and quite moving. And he was openly weeping because he was saying, you know, I was I was run down and degraded and received death threats and all this for going on this this trip that I went on. I guess kind of a fact finding mission, if you could if you can call it that with regards to Dennis Rodman. But, you know, you watch this and I was struck by the fact that it really seemed that that Dennis Rodman genuinely cared about the people of North Korea and was genuinely very, very happy to see even the possibility or chance that something was happening that could result in a a vast improvement in, in those people's lives. And there's, you know, tens of millions of them. And I was sitting there watching that and watching this man openly weep. And even though he's completely crazy, I mean, even crazy people, you know, stop clocks or write twice a day and all that. And, you know, I was watching that and saying, Dennis Rodman has a healthier, um, more, uh, let's just say it, a, a more Christian, a more charitable um response and 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 regard for the people of North Korea than pretty much all the rest of us. I mean, we don't sit around and weep. I mean, we all acknowledge that North Korea is just this absolutely satanic dumpster fire of a of a tyrannical state and these people are being held in in basically virtual captivity, starvation, et cetera, et cetera. No, I, I think it's literal Brain- captivity and starvation. Say again. I think it's literal. I think it's captivity. literal. Yeah, literal, literal captivity and starvation. Uh, but you know, have any of us ever openly wept over the people of North Korea? I, I dare say not. I dare say not. But you know, Dennis Rodman did, and and you know, maybe that's a gut check for all of us. If if that if that loon is capable of of having a more healthy and charitable regard for the people of North Korea than we are. What does that say about us? So well, and that's my little... There's the theory that uh, he heard that uh, the, the the people in power in North Korea, and I, I don't know if this was before Kim Jong-un or however you say the guy's name who's in charge now. 
don't know if this was when he was actually in charge or he was just next in line, but uh, Rodman found out that they were big fans of the NBA over there. So one way or another, he got himself into Korea. And uh, I, I guess the Oons speak English. That was one of the other things from this last meeting is or this last week is apparently Rod, or not Rodman. Um, Trump, <laughs> Trump, Rodman. What's the difference? They're both reality stars. Um, <laughs> Trump and, and, and Kim had a one-on-one meeting. I'm like, wait a minute, does one of them speak the same language as the other? Are we trusting translators here? I mean, that's an awful yeah, lot of power for I a translator. Think, but if, if memory serves, I think Kim Jong-un was educated in Switzerland in European, you know, super fancy schools. I think what the deal was is that originally he's not the eldest son, that the eldest son was, I think, murdered. I think he was knocked out of the way. And Kim Jong-un is like the second or third son. And so it kind of wasn't expected from from the time that he was a little kid that he was going to be made the figurehead. And also, I just want to say with regards to that, I, I don't think any of these, um, you know, these dictators, quote unquote, I don't think they're actually dictators. I think it's, the you know, the generals, obviously, who are running the country. And then the the Kim... What, who's his father? Kim Jong-il is his father. Kim Il-sung is the grandfather. These have all just been puppet fronts that are put forth, um, very much like Obama. I mean, Obama wasn't running the country. Obama's an imbecile. Um, and you can you can go back and we can make all kinds of citations of people who are put forward as puppet fronts, and in the case of North Korea, who are who are deified and are and it's demanded that the people basically worship whoever this puppet front is as as a god. I mean, they say they say ridiculous things like Kim Jong Il went to the golf course and um, shot, you know, went and played 18 holes and shot shot a, a, a 22 in 18 holes, you know. Um, things I, I like heard that. on a podcast that if if uh, if the next round of this is Trump inviting Kim over to Mar-a-Lago and they go play golf, that is going to be the most fantastic golf golf score pairing for for a two person outing ever in history because it'll ever, be Kim eighteen, Trump nineteen. Yep, exactly, exactly. You know, and Trump Trump would just he would just intentionally um, um, he would intentionally have a two. On a, he would he would one putt a par three, you know, just just in deference to to um, to Kim Jong Un, you know, so that he could have the perfect the perfect round and, and shoot a perfect 18. Yeah, that'd be awesome. That would be awesome. Unfortunately, none of the cameras will be working when that when that comes to pass. Yeah. But so uh, so, you know, you've got the puppet front that they put out. It's Kim Kim Jong, which I can't, I can't get him all confused. This one right now is Kim Jong Un. Un. I I don't think any. It was really anticipated in his youth that he was going to be put forth as the puppet front. So they sent him off, and I think it was Switzerland. They sent him off to a Swiss boarding school. He was educated there, and then for whatever reason, the the other brother, elder brother, or two brothers, or whatever it is, they got crossways with the generals. They got, uh, <laughs> they met their fate, and then they installed this kid. So yeah, I'm not surprised at all that that he speaks English and and is a fan of American sports and American culture. It doesn't surprise me at all. Well, you'd have to be English because I don't know if NBA TV goes over satellite in uh, Korean, maybe Chinese, but I don't know. 
Yeah, yeah, probably in Chinese, in all seriousness, it probably does, but probably not in Korean, you're right. Speaking of the press going apoplectic and not knowing what to make of this, uh, apparently Bill Maher was quoted as saying, we hope there's going to be a recession, that way we can blame it on Trump. And this wasn't like off-the-cuff kind of snark comments, this was actually in his monologue prepared, somebody vetted this. Uh, We were just chatting before we hit the record button, that uh, on on one of the talk shows, somebody was lamenting the fact that we are no longer at the brink of nuclear war and we may have to credit Trump with this. It's like, how how crazy have you got to be, you know, to say I'd rather be nuked than to give Trump credit? Uh, Yeah, it's called derangement syndrome of whatever flavor you want to put it into. It's called derangement syndrome for a reason. And when derangement syndromes like this are left unchecked and there's no cultural backstop to do anything about this, that's how you end up with guillotines in in the public square and things like that. So, again, shouldn't be surprised by all this. It was interesting with Marr. What what the media did is they went back and um, I think right after Obama usurped the White House, Rush Limbaugh said on his show, well, you know, obviously, he, I hope he fails. He said, Limbaugh said, I hope he fails. And the context of what Limbaugh was saying was, this guy is a, is a super hard leftist puppet. This agenda that they want to enact is going to absolutely economically destroy the country. Um, it might foment civil war, which it certainly has, I mean, Obama, that whole thing certainly drove um, race race relations in the U.S. back Good grief. I mean, 70, 80 years, you know, um, well, at least 40, at least 40, if not, if not 60, 70 or 80. And well, going, um, going back 60, 70, 80, you have Jim Crow laws on, on the books. You have the separate color fountains and or color fountain. They colored uh, water fountains. Uh, so that didn't come back. But in terms but, of, in but, terms uh, of, uh, of but, strife, came, yeah, it came back inverted, though, because with with the after the Obama uh, agenda is enacted, it's it's the blacks who are demanding their own segregation. It's it's they are demanding their safe spaces and they are demanding um, they are demanding their own segregation. So in a weird, contorted, inside out way, you are going back to segregation and so forth. So it's kind of it's kind of more a little bit trickier than it seems on the surface. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say the th- this is just touching on on details of a, of a larger topic that I've talked about in the past, and that is the the whole insanity of of um, group politics or or, or um, uh, identity politics that you don't judge people on individuals by their individual merit, but by which group they're part of. And mm-hmm. the the intersectional benefit of if you are uh, a member of more than one marginalized group. So if you are a black lesbian, um, I don't know, woman. I guess that would be the, the <laughs> who identifies as a man. I, 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 I'm I'm getting ahead of myself and forgetting what I was going to say. But the point is, if you have all these different identity groups that intersect in one individual, then that is somebody who is more equal than all the rest because they can claim more victimhood. It's insanity. What can you actually do? That's what really matters in the end. Yeah. I mean, meritocracy out the window and it cracks me up now. I'm, I'm no fan of Martin Luther King Jr. Obviously, or Michael King as is, as is his real name, who was a bisexual, who was, um, a plagiarist, just basically a, a carny hack, um, uh, preacher who, 
<laughs> who was able to give um, was able to give persuasive sermons in in a in a black dialect that was completely understandable to to the white ear, you know, as opposed to someone like Jesse Jackson, who you can't oftentimes you can't even understand what he's saying. You can understand every single word that King said, and it, you could put him in the class of being an orator, um, but a lot of his stuff was plagiarized, and of course, and he was also a sex pervert. Um, but in terms of King, you know, it cracks me up because they're, they'll be constantly talking about Dr. King, Dr. King, Dr. King. And they're, but yet the, the modern leftist mindset is exactly the opposite of what King's, King's slogan was, um, that my children will be judged not by the color of their skin, but the content of their character. And yet, you know, people today, the and especially the leftists, unable to think logically or rationally, don't even realize, it seems to me, or perhaps they do re- realize and they don't care, that their entire position is exactly contrary to King's position, but yet they still deify King and are still constantly, you know, reverently saying his name, no pun intended, reverently saying his name and Dr. King this, Dr. King that. It just, those those sorts of things they shouldn't surprise me anymore, but, but they still, they still cause me to arch an eyebrow. It's almost like, um, I don't know, uh, prelates of the Roman Catholic church who, who, uh, claim they uphold the traditions of the church, but they don't seem to actually believe or act on anything that is consistent with it. Uh, <laughs> uh yes. Yeah, we're gonna, also that. <laughs> yeah, we could jump all over the place with this. And you know, with, with, with this kind of insanity in society, I guess it's not surprising that, um, that people um, at some point just kind of give up on other human beings and say, let's just have animals instead. And I I don't mean for dinner. I mean, they're going vegan for crying out loud. (laughs) No animals for dinner. No, no, they have them for dinner, but they, they get them a little chair or a high chair and they set them at the table and they give them their own little plate. I've, I've seen this, I've seen this happen. And um, yeah, the whole, the whole, animal pets as a uh, proxy as proxy children first and foremost but also just as proxy human beings is um it's an extremely troubling disturbing phenomenon and it's it's a very anti anti-life phenomenon too it's part of the culture of death Right. And we had a bunch of notes to talk about that. And I was trying to uh, set this up and tee it up because I wasn't exactly sure where you <laughs> wanted to go with that. Well, let's just dive right in. Let's just dive right in. So I think, you know, my entire thesis about this is this whole business of these people. Um, it's generally women, but it's it's also men, too. But these people running around with these dogs um that they treat like children and also cats. I mean, there's the, there's the crazy cat lady and and all of that. And, but it, but the dog thing is different because these people are taking dogs out, carrying them around, taking them into restaurants, swaddling them like they're babies and carrying them around as their babies. And something else I've seen is they are now making, um, like, uh, baby strollers 
except they're not for babies. They're for dogs. So you'll see a woman walking down the street, pushing a stroller, uh, you know, a buggy sort of a thing. And when you pass, you'll look down into this buggy and there's a dog in there. And, um, I saw one of these one time, you know, I ended up standing next, next to a woman who had one of these. And I asked her if the dog was, was injured or, you know, disabled. And she said, Oh no, 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 no. He, he just gets tired. So it's, it's better if he just, if he just rides in this and you're just like, are, are you absolutely insane? And actually, actually, the answer, sadly, is yes, this is a form of insanity. This blurring of the animal-human line um, has contributed, and, and you know, we, we've made show notes, and you just, you make a, an entire list of all of the culture of death issues. Abortion, euthanasia, murder, death panels in, in terms of socialized medicine, um, suicide, all of these things. And you can tie this directly to this business of, of making animals into humans. So elevating animals up to the level of humans and at the same time pushing human beings down. Um, so the whole, the, the whole business of drawing the line between human beings and animals being, of course, the fact that human beings and and angels as well are rational intellects. That's what created in the image and likeness of God means. We are rational intellects. Animals are not even the, I don't care how smart the dog is. I don't care how smart the chimpanzee, the gorilla, whatever the hell it is. Those are not rational intellects. They are not capable of love. They're capable of attachment. But again, what do people do? They see an animal forming an attachment to a human being and they try to assign um, love to the animal that, that forms this attachment. I hate to break it to you, but the reason your dog, your cat, a gorilla, anything, the reason why any of these animals create an attachment to any human being is because the human being is a source of food. Why did Lassie run back to the house and, and bark and tell somebody that Timmy had fallen down the well. Lassie went and told someone that Timmy had, had fallen down the well because it was Timmy who, as part of his chores, brought Lassie the, the dish of food twice a day. Let, let's not kid ourselves, okay? Um, you know... You, and you say, oh, no, I, there are these these people who have these service dogs and they're in combat over over in Afghanistan or Iraq and whatever. And, you know, those dogs would would die for it. Well, yeah, it, it, you can say that that some of these more intelligent dogs would, in fact, put themselves in danger and so forth. But I'm sorry, it, it is simply it is simply incorrect. It is theologically incorrect to assign the ability to love to a non-rational intellect, that is an animal. Animals cannot love. 
And if you if you start assigning this this garbage to animals and start talking about how, you know, when the animal dies, the animal goes to heaven. And when I die, I'm going to be reunited with Fluffy in heaven. No, sorry. Fluffy is not going to be in heaven because heaven is the beatific vision indwelling inside of the Trinity, pondering the Trinity from the inside and only rational intellects that are capable of love can, can do that. There is no domain, there is no place in the beatific vision for an animal. What, what there will be is everything about the animal that was good and that was attractive to you and was, was beautiful and gave you joy and happiness all the way down to the texture of the fur, you know, the purring of the cat, all of these, these kind of attributes in abs in, in in an abstraction, but it, it could pro- probably perhaps even be said in a, in a far more amplified way, will will exist in the beatific vision. Every, everything everything that's good and beautiful exists in the beatific vision. And the the perfect example of this, and I need to write this up as an essay, is bacon. And the title of this essay that I will someday write when I when I stop being lazy is the, on the baconness of God. There is no bacon per se in heaven, obviously, but there is infinite baconness because the the wonderful aspects of bacon that are so attractive and that we all love so much and and give us all so much joy and happiness. Since God contains everything in himself that is good and beautiful and wholesome and wonderful, and and certainly bacon is all of those things, that that is there, that, that God contains that. If you think about it, how could anything good not be part of God? How, how could how could the goodness of bacon, and it is good, the flavor, the texture, the smell, everything about it, those things that are good, how could those exist completely separate from God? God contains all things that are good. So while there is there is no bacon in heaven or any other food stuff or any 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 drink or anything like that that we like and makes us happy, all of the all of the the qualities that are good that make us happy, God contains in himself. So God contains what what we can call, for lack of a better word, all baconness. And he and he contains all baconness in infinite quantity and perfection. So while there's no bacon in heaven, there's there's God in heaven and he contains baconness. So you will have bacon. You will have you will have you have baconness. You will have petness. You will be lacking nothing. And it is it's so infuriating to hear people and intelligent people talk is saying things like well heaven just wouldn't be heaven if fluffy if fluffy the cat isn't there and you're you just think to yourself do you think about what you've just said you can can you do you think about the insult that you've just paid to god saying that you know if you make it to the beatific vision that the fact that your cat isn't there is going to mean that that god is somehow lacking and you will be you will be missing something it's 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 you you might think it's kind of a trivial point, but it it betrays um, 
a lack of understanding, a lack of thoughtfulness, and back back to what I talk about all the time, a lack of a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Do you sit down and think about who God is? Do you ever sit down and think about what is the triune Godhead? Now, you, now it's granted, you can't get your you can't get your head around it, but it seems to me that all of us should have at least some sort of a passing interest in this, considering that that we are commanded to love God above absolutely everything, and that our lives should revolve around Him. And that he is who he is, and he is the creator of, of life, the, the creator of the universe, um, all powerful, all good, all loving, all beautiful, all truth, all justice, all mercy. D- don't you think you should sit down and think about this? Um, and it frustrates me when even seemingly intelligent people just give every indication that they don't. And I think one of the key ways that people kind of tip their hand that they don't think about this is the way they talk about animals, the way they talk about pets and how they relate to animals in life. So any thoughts? Do do you guys super nerd, does Schloss super nerd have a, have a hund or kitty cats or anything? Not at the moment, no. We're we're a little too in the urban area for that, and uh, it would be an injustice to a quadruped of the uh, canine variety to be locked into my mm. backyard at the moment. So, Indeed. in terms of thoughts, um, <laughs> now it's getting away from me, darn it. Um, I, w- I wanted to say, I was going to say something, and now I <laughs> your question derailed me, darn it. Sorry, I yeah. have that effect on people. Yeah, unfortunately. Um, I don't know. It was something semi-profound. Oh, it was okay. I remember now the <laughs> idea of, of the, you know, the intelligent people getting away from humans and deciding to love something else, just the whole idea of what is love of its very nature. And it's, it's, you know, in case we forget love is in the will. It's not in the intelligence. It's not about how much, you know, it's about how much you will. And it's your will for the good of something else. Now, in the case of God, you can't will for the good of God. He already is good. But in the case of other human beings, I'm sure there are people who you know, who if you might be able to make the statement that if, if somebody knew them more, they wouldn't love them more. And it's, it's one of these things I, I ponder from time to time. It's like, well, who's the real idiot here? The people who are seemingly intelligent and, and, and uh, can, can identify what they perceive to be bad in a human being and therefore not worthy of love or those who either don't or can't see the negative, but rather see every human being as a vessel of Jesus Christ and therefore an object worthy of love because God says that whatever you do to the least of, of my brethren, you do to me. And so those mm-hmm. who love with all their heart, every human being, because they are humans, because they are in, uh, made in the image of, of God, that doesn't really take a lot of intelligence. And that's not knocking people who love in that manner. I wish I could be that enlightened. I'm, I'm too cynical for the most part. Um, well, and I think a great example of this is, um, you know, our brothers and sisters with Down syndrome, whom we've talked about this before, that, you know, they they are just built to love their love machines. And they truly do, um, as as a group of people, seem to embody this ability to love other human beings 
precisely because they are human beings. And like you just said, to not do what so many of us do and start, you know, intellectually analyzing people and, you know, finding reasons not to and, and finding all these reasons. It's, it's an extraordinarily difficult thing. And sometimes I think that, yeah, it's true that people who are more intelligent have more, have, have to put up more of a fight to, to retain that simplicity and to just love other human beings purely, purely by virtue of the fact that they're human, much like our brothers and sisters with Down syndrome do. Well, I guess something else that comes to mind, I, I, I suppose at some point in your life, you watched, um, Olympic gymnastics and not yes. going in any direction of what you wrote about this week. But the idea being that for certain um, routines, the more difficult uh, something is, uh, the, the, the more points you can get, but also the, the more it can mess up your score if you mess it up. It's mm-hmm. almost like the more intelligent you are, the, the higher degree of difficulty of getting through life in the state of grace or you know complying with, with what you're supposed to do in the eyes of God. Whereas if you're not burdened with the intelligence and you're just, you have the will and you know that you're supposed to love and that's what you do, Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that's actually seems pretty easy. <laughs> indeed. Indeed. Um, and you know, not, not to say that we should be, you know, despising intelligence or anything like that, but, but yeah, it's absolutely true. There is that, that teeter totter effect. And I suppose that that's a function of, of the fall, you know, that if, if you've got the one, then you're going to struggle with the other and, and, and back and forth that, you know, there's, there's kind of no free lunch for fallen man, but, but that it is what it is. And, you know, acknowledging these things is like half the battle. You know, if you can sit down and think about this and say, okay, here's the problem. Um, it, let's assume we're, we're, you know, we're not talking about people with down syndrome, but we're talking more about ourselves who tend to skew more towards the, the more intelligent end of the spectrum within the human race. And I don't think that it's, it's unreasonable to say that, um, and say, okay, I know I'm going to have this problem. So this is what I really need to think about, focus on, work on and, uh, do, do the repetitions like the gymnasts do and, and don't fall off the balance beam. (laughs) And and if you do get back up, um, something else too, is not, not to demean people of intelligence. I mean, if, if you don't have the intelligence or if you do have the intelligence, you have the ability to actually read St. Thomas Aquinas and, and, and follow it and be just completely in awe of, of what he's you know, writing about and, and to think about God in all the manifest uh, ways that, that he manifests himself in, throughout the world. I mean, it, uh, I, there's a friend of mine who, I don't know if it ever really happened, but we, we made the joke about her because it was, it was something she would do. Um, that it, if she was shopping in the grocery store and saw somebody drop a dozen eggs and break on the floor, she would instantly start having a, a, you know, a, a meditation on the fragility of life and how you always have to be ready to, to present yourself before God. And it's like, if you have the ability to seize on just the most tangential thing like that and turn it into a meditation of God, that's awesome. It is. It really is. Um, and kind, kind of in a similar vein, just because this jogged my memory, it, I've, I've been having, you know, correspondences and or conversations with people a lot in, you know, over the past year or so. And, and kind of a related theme keeps coming up. And that is um, the more intelligent the person, 
the greater the capacity for the person to make a terrible mistake. The most terrible mistakes made in human history have been made by, you know, if you measured their IQs, extremely intelligent people. And you can take it even a step beyond that and say that the most terrible mistake that was ever made was made by the highest angelic being that God created, Lucifer, that he was given and, you know, a third of the angels were given just a, a massive amount of information. They, they never had the beatific vision because once, once any um, created being has the beatific vision, it's impossible to turn away from it. It's just not possible. So, you know, God created all these angels and they were given an enormous amount of information about God. I mean, you know, information that none of us can even begin to comprehend. They were given that information about who God is, how he's infinite love, how he's infinite goodness, how he's infinite beauty, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, the biggest mistake that they could possibly make, they made. And the highest of them led them in that mistake, in rejecting God, turning their back on God, and choosing, you know, eternal hell, that is being permanently outside of outside of God's presence. So, I mean, that's the ultimate proof set of the biggest mistakes that are made are made by the most intelligent people. People who are not intelligent certainly make mistakes, but they tend to not have, you know, just the the catastrophic consequences that mistakes that intelligent and hyper intelligent people have the ability to make in the world. But the common thread there is that they believe that these abilities either are of their own um, merit or they, 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 they become too enamored with their own abilities. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the best example to show the opposite of this is that the greatest single created intelligence ever was the most humble of all creatures. The, the mother yes. of God, I think the doctors are in unanimous agreement that she had more infused knowledge and intellective capacity than any human or any angel. Wow. And yet she was the one who was so humble that the devil never even noticed her. Mm-hmm. She walked around and and just lived, and nobody knew. Nobody knew. Maybe Saint Joseph. I don't know. Do you think even Saint Joseph understood I, how high she was? I think he was clued in. Yes. But he he probably had to have it, you know, uh, infused or uh, uh, interior locution or something like that. He probably had to have it explicitly explained to him. I don't know. I think he's the kind of he's the kind of person who would have been humble enough to not have noticed Mary had had he not been uh, had had things not been arranged for him to be mar- married to her. But mm-hmm. once once being married and noticing who his wife is, it's going to be obvious at that point. I, I would imagine that you know I, I I'm pretty sure that the it's not as universally held among the doctors, but Saint Joseph is is, is said to have been. Uh, given some choice uh, uh, gifts that the rest of us have not had either. I mean, not like Adam and Eve level uh, infused knowledge, but he he definitely understood what was going on. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Not that he knew it all along, but but uh, definitely was aware of it. But uh, 
I just want to go back and, and repeat something I said because it, it is the first time I ever heard a priest say this. It was something as it sounded so strange, but the more you think about it, it kind of makes sense that Mary was so humble that the devil never even noticed her. And and the whole idea there being is that the Satan he he tempts people based on their weaknesses. I mean, the the minute somebody gets pride and gets arrogant about something, oh, that's easy. And everybody, we all have pride. We all have arrogance about something. Even people of low in, uh, intellectual capacity, we, we mentioned the Down syndrome people, they still, mm-hmm. you, they get pretty fierce in, in, with their will from time to time. Try to, try to get them to do something when they want to eat. That's, you're you're <laughs> going to find out just how strong their will is. And that there's, even though they may not have the intellectual capacity, they still have pride. But yet Mary never showed any of that. That's a great point because... Satan was unsure about about who who exactly our Lord was. And I believe it was you who first explained to me that the reason that Lucifer uh, rejected God is because Lucifer, it wasn't that Lucifer wanted to be um, um, wanted to be God incarnate. What you explained to me, and this was a big light bulb for me, was that Lucifer wanted to essentially be in the in the role of Our Lady. He wanted to be the conduit through which the second person incarnated into the world. And when when he when Lucifer was given the information that no, this is going to be this is going to happen through a human woman. Okay, so Lucifer already knew that it was going to be a human woman through whom the second person would would enter the world. So, I mean, even knowing that and kind of, I suppose, being on the lookout, Our Lady must have been so humble that it didn't even occur to Lucifer, even knowing that it would be a woman, he and, and and presumably, you know, scanning the entire human population for this woman and waiting for this woman to to show up and arrive. Um, that and then seeing our Lord, he 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 still didn't know. He still was unsure about our Lord's identity. Um, you know, taking him out into into the desert and the temptation and all of that. You know. Uh, Satan didn't didn't know for sure who who exactly our Lord and Our Lady were. That's that's pretty amazing if you stop and think about it. You're right. Well, and it's this is straight out of uh, Aquinas, if if I'm remembering correctly. That in the way the the angels learn things is that the more elevated angels or the more I guess closer to God, the more intellectual capacity angels pass their knowledge or communicate their knowledge to the other angels. So. All, everything that all the angels would have known prior to the fall came through Lucifer. Everything was given mm. to him. He communicated it down. And so it was in his nature, so to speak, if there were going to be these fleshy creations, that if, if God was going to be communicated to them, then, well, clearly it would have to go through Lucifer because Lucifer is the one through whom you know, all creatures uh, obtain knowledge. He's the only one who's qualified to take the information from God and communicate to other creatures. He is, he is the apex creature. But wait, you're going to say, no, one of these humans is going to be that person? And I almost said, yeah, not just a human, but, but the, the, the lower of the, the, of, the, of the sexes after the fall, but this would have been before the fall. So I don't know if that, that would have been communicated as well, that, that there would be a fall and that, that it wouldn't even be a man through whom this information be communicated, but it'd be a woman. 
I don't know. Mm-hmm. We're, we're, we're getting into to speculation because none of this is defined canon. It certainly makes sense. It, mm-hmm. it, and in that, re, in that regard, you know, you know, if you're listening to this and saying this is all bat guano crazy, go ahead and ignore it. it is, this is not, you know, defined. Um, but what, what is certain is there are angels. Uh, Lucifer uh, rejected God and took a third of the angels with him. And God came to us through Mary. Now, all, yes. the, all the rest of the details in between, feel free to ignore it if you want to. I mean, if you, you can disagree with St. Thomas if you want to. Um, I wouldn't personally because he's a lot smarter <laughs> than I am. And he, he was given signal graces that maybe one person every 100 years gets. Mm-hmm. And he cooperated with him. It certainly, it's certainly food for thought, and it's, um, it's certainly something to think about. And again, if you, if you love God, if you love Our Lady, obviously, if you love our, you know, our Lord Jesus Christ, why wouldn't you want to think about this? Why wouldn't you want to know? Um, again, going back to love, one, one of the, one of the characteristics of love, is that you want to know, you want to intellectually apprehend as much as you possibly can the, the, the person that you love and whether that person is, you know, the triune Godhead, angels, our lady, whatever, you know, if, if you're really going to say, or other human beings, if you're really going to say that you, that you really want to love somebody, then it seems to me that if you do have the intellectual capacity that you should have a desire. You should have a desire to intellectually apprehend and know as much as you can about, about your beloved as possible. It's very, very strange. And it's always a red flag when, you know, you meet people who are completely incurious about other people, um, even to the point of, can't, can't being bothered to learn other people's names or, you know, just never asking, never making any inquiries into other people's lives, other people's, you know, origins, backstories, just being completely uninterested in other human beings. Um, watch out for that because it's, it's definitely a red flag. It seems to me, and then at least that's my personal experience. I was going to say, um, if you've ever heard of somebody who is brags about the fact that they've lived in a building for 20 years and don't know their neighbors, just how weird would that seem? Of course, that person probably wouldn't tell you that because they wouldn't want to get to know you well enough to tell you that either. But if that happened, you you just think, how can you do that? And you're not a monk. You don't shut yourself into your your um, your apartment all the time. You must just not like people, and that that's certainly mm-hmm. a problem. Indeed. Well, let's let's try to get back to the animal thing. That would that kind of went that went far afield, but that was really cool. Um, but, you know, getting back to the animals thing, circling back around, um, you know, there's just talking about this business that's so common now of people addressing, calling, referring to their dogs, their cats as their children. I see this all the time. And I tell you what, boy, you know, if, if I had parents and they were, and they were calling some, some damn dog, um, my child and putting me on the same level as a dog or, or as a cat, 
I, I tell you what, we'd be we'd be having a, a little conversation about that. That would not be acceptable. And yet I see it going on all the time. And, you know, people with adult children or whatever, or even people people with young children or people who have the dog and then refer to their, you know, their human baby that they've just had as their second child. And, you know, we, we brought the baby home to meet, to meet his brother. The do- I mean, this is so crazy and so disordered and so wrong. And I, I think one of the things that we should be doing as, you know, Orthodox believing Catholics is when we hear people talking like this, I think we need to speak up. I think we need to say something. I think we need to start re-shaming people. And, you know, yes, this is probably going to cost you um, earthly, earthly esteem, so on and so forth. But how in the world are these people going to be corrected if we don't do it? Do, do you think that the mainstream media is going to do it? Do you think the mainstream of our culture is going to do it? No, the mainstream of our culture is feeding it precisely because if you have this disordered um, notion of animals as humans and humans as animals, what that does is that it completely feeds in to the culture of death. It feeds into abortion. It feeds into what's coming. I mean, abortion is is positively passe now. What's coming down the pike now is outright infanticide. You know, giving parents a quote unquote window of however many weeks or months after the birth of a handicapped child to decide whether or not they want to go ahead and and euthanize the child and commit infanticide because as as super nerd put into put into the show notes, ooh, it's handicapped, and that's exactly right. It's just a fourth um, term abortion. It's just a fourth term term abortion, exactly. Um, and then it also feeds into the, well, this is huge is euthanasia, obviously, because we do euthanize animals. Of course, you euthanize an animal who is who is sick, who is suffering, who is in pain. Of course you put that animal down. Why? Because the suffering cannot, um, the suffering cannot avail the animal of any, of any greater good because the animal is not a rational intellect. The animal does not go to heaven or hell. When the animal dies, it's just boom, light, it's, it's lights out. Obviously, that's why we eat them. Because when we slaughter them, that's it. That's the end. You're not, you're not, there's no involvement with any sort of afterlife or anything like that. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. But if you blur this line, people look at animals and, and doing the right thing by animals, such that when an animal is diagnosed with you know, cancer or what, whatever it is. And the animal is, is suffering the quality of life, a very popular term, um, amongst the, the euthanasia crowd. But with regards to animals, it's, it's a, it's a very legitimate term when the quality of the animal's life, especially if it's a pet has, has degraded, um, you put the animal out of its misery because the suffering can serve no purpose to the animal. The suffering can serve no purpose. Whereas with human beings, because we are rational intellects, the suffering 
you know, united to the cross of Christ, the, the, the suffering that comes with, you know, cancer or whatever, whatever painful sort of an illness or death that, that human beings do in fact suffer, that suffering is, is what can, you know, propel a person to die well, to die in friendship with God, um, and to make it to heaven. It can make, it can make all the difference. And so, but you know, if you, if you blur that line between human and animal, then it's, it's just very, very, it's a very simple, logical step based upon a false premise to just euthanize grandma. Well, well, grandma has cancer or grandma has dementia. Grandma has this, grandma has that. We put the dog down. Why in the world? Why in the world wouldn't we put grandma down? Or why wouldn't we let grandma put herself down? Um, and so, you know, a- again, it kind of goes back and it feeds into all of this, this whole unhealthy relationship um, with pets. And that, that's a very, very clear one. Well, and, and also the the idea of, in a lot of practical cases too, yes, the, the suffering of a pet doesn't merit anything in, in, on the spiritual order, but also it, it can be pretty expensive to take care of pets. And, and once you make the analogy of humans to animals in that regard with regard to euthanasia, yeah, it's we we put the dog that put the dog down. So why not put grandma down? But also, how much does it keep? To, how much does it cost to keep grandma alive? Mm-hmm. You know, right. We don't want her to burn through you know, our inheritance. <laughs> our inheritance. Yep, that's right. I mean, let's be honest. It's it's we we love the dog, but we're not we're not going to drop a hundred grand on the dog. There are people who do that though. There are people who there are, there are vets now that will do organ transplants in, in dogs. I mean, some of it is just, is just crazy. Um, but yeah, you're absolutely right. We wouldn't spend a hundred grand on the dog. Um, what really is the difference? And you know, if, if grandma really loved us, she'd kind of, she'd kind of agree with this on, agree with us on this. And she would, she would kind of see that all she's going to do by dragging this out is take away our inheritance. Oh yes. That's a huge, huge dynamic in play in this euthanasia thing. And it's, um, you know, it's scary. I've, I've seen, there've been a couple of, um, you know, kind of magazine pieces. Um, I don't know if we've ever linked to this or not, if I've ever linked to it or not. It's absolutely terrifying. This thing that, you know, I think we've talked about um, suicide and euthanasia being, especially for the elderly, being turned into kind of like a luxury vacation destination event where you go to this luxury facility, you throw a big party, you have all your friends and family come, you have, you know, a champagne a champagne reception, blah, blah, blah. And then the, the piece that I read, it was particularly chilling. It was a married couple. And, you know, they were like 90, 93 and 95. They'd been married for goodness, almost 70 years. I want to say maybe over 70 years. And they did this, you know, they said they were pissed off that they'd lived so long. They weren't in, in particularly ill health at all, considering that they were in their nineties. Um, they were still able-bodied and everything. And they say, we, we want to go out on top. And so they did this thing. They went to this luxury resort destination for euthanasia, had this champagne reception, 
and then looked at each other and said, well, you want to go do this? And yeah, let's go. Let's go do it. And went and they crawled into a bed and hooked themselves up to um, a poison IV drip and committed suicide right there. Just, you know, let, let, let's, let's just go do it. Are you ready? Okay, we've had our little fun. We've had our little, we've had our little champagne reception. Let's go kill ourselves now. And oh, it was so beautiful. And some damn Episcopalian minister was there, you know, to, to read something out of, out of the Psalms or something. Just terrifying. Absolutely terrifying. Isn't this also, wasn't that a plot device in the movie Soylent Green? Um, yeah, I mean, that was, that's the reason why the people went there. I do the whole idea of having a party to uh, commit suicide, to alleviate the overburden or the overcrowding in New York or something like that. I mean, it was a dystopian science fiction movie, Mm -hmm. or maybe it was predicting the future. I don't know. It's kind of hard to tell with some of these movies. Uh, I think, (laughs) I think it's, it's predicting the future. The only thing that's missing is the, the classic line from Soylent Green, Charlton Heston, (laughs) it's made out of people. It's well, made out of people. We haven't started eating eating these dead bodies yet, but oh, give give them a year, year and a half, and I'm sure that somebody at some point will put forward that we should just go ahead and turn this into a protein supplement for you know the starving starving kitties in in North Korea or Africa or whatever you want to say. I wonder if maybe that's why the pro abortion pro euthanasia people are so adamantly vegan. They don't want to have soil and green. Maybe they know what this uh, you, is all you know about. what I suspect. You know what I suspect, because that whole vegan mindset is so ideological. I bet that if it came to it and they started whizzing up and turning um, suicided humans into basically a spam product, I bet you that a lot of vegans would eat it. And would and would find some way to rationalize it, justify it. You know, oh, we we can't eat an animal. We can't eat an animal. But yeah, it is okay to eat human protein. Vegan it, meat. Don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. It's vegan meat. <laughs> it's vegan meat. That's no right. No animals were that's harmed. Right. Yep. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's that's 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 sick and twisted. But, you know, the the way the world is going, the speed with which it's going, and as completely irrational as as the world is, uh, you, heard, you heard it here first. You heard it here first. Well, it reminds me of a joke that a comedian made once. Like, say what you want about the Nazis, but at least with all their medical experimentation, they didn't hurt any animals. <laughs> oh, boo. <laughs> yeah. Yep. You know, most, do you know most of the Nazis were, um, vegetarians, sodomites and vegetarians? It, it's, uh, uh, it's un- uncanny how those two groups go together. Mm, indeed. Isn't it though? <sighs> Let's talk about bacon again. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about anything else. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what we should talk about super nerd? Talk about a segue. You know what we should talk about now? Um, Stale Big Macs. Oh, I was going to say, good. As long as you're not talking about World Cup soccer, because I really don't think that's a, a, that, that's a sport that should be banished. I mean, that's that's talk about beneath the dignity of humans. God gives us <laughs> hands and opposable thumbs with which we can do things like grip a bat and hit a 100 mile an hour baseball. But no, let's ignore the fact we have hands and go kick a ball with just using our feet. Come on. Horses I can remember, do this. And your head and your head. I remember reading an essay. Years well, if you're not going to use your head ago. any other way, you might as well. 
right, right, right. I remember reading an essay many, many years ago, and I wish I could find it. I've not been able to find it again. And it was the most brilliant thing, just absolutely deconstructing soccer as a fundamentally evil paradigm, you know, encouraging people to, to, to finish in a tie and, you know, I mean, getting excited because something almost happens. It's just, it's so, it's so, um, contrary to, to masculine virility and, and everything good. It's just, and it's, I think the base thesis was that soccer was an intrinsically Marxist um, was an intrinsically Marxist sport. And, oh, I wish I could find that. Maybe, maybe between the two of us, we can find that essay or something close to it. There's got to be a bunch of them out there by now. Just Medi- you know, mediocrity, participation trophies, and orange slices. That's pretty much what you can substitute soccer or chalk it up to being. Yep, that's right. That's right. <laughs> but that wasn't the other topic. <laughs> the other topic is uh, something I've been midnight fast. I thought. Oh, yeah, that's right. The the Communion Fest. I, I wrote that piece. And, you know, it's kind of interesting. I think there were a lot of people out there that were kind of not about hearing about the Midnight Fast and were kind of thinking, well, that's that's just pure rigorism right there and and not so good. And, you know, my response to that is, and I had, I had this question put to me not too long ago, um, you know, a person saying, you know, I'm just I'm just so confused you know, because the Novus Orduis, they have they have all of their their things that you're do and do not, and you know the the Charismatics have all of their little rules and regulations, and then the Trad Catholics they have all of their rules and regulations, and I I just don't know I just don't even know which one I'm supposed to be observing and following, and you know the answer to that is really really simple and really commonsensical. If you have a tradition that started in the upper room in 30, um, in the year of the reparation of human salvation, and carried on pretty much uninterrupted and consistently up until when the asteroid hit in the middle of the 1960s, and then everything goes off the rails. And you're asking yourself, which one is right? The thing from from 30 AD up until, let's call it 1965. Except the or, thing at 30 AD traces its lineage back another 2,000 years to the original temple. Well put, yes. And you have this, at minimum... 1,900 year long tradition. And as super nerd just pointed out, you know, tack another, tack another 2000 years onto that. That to the mosaic um, law, not the temple. I, I will get corrected on that one. I'm sure it's the mosaic law. The temple was about, I don't know, five, six, 700 AD someone or BC. Someone can email and tell me on that one. Indeed. We'll look it up. We'll probably put it in the show notes. Um, if that, if that's your choice here, Hmm, what do you think? Which one do you think is true, good, and accurate, and which is which do you think is probably something that that you don't really need to be paying attention to and is and might even be unhealthy? Um, I'm gonna go with the one that what persisted up until the middle of the 1960s. I'm gonna look at what what people, the church, everything did before the asteroid hit, consistently all the way back. 
And what people did and what the law of the church was uninterrupted until 1957, in the very last months of Pius XII's life, when he was extremely ill, and there's speculation that he wasn't maybe even calling all of the shots towards the end, and that it might not even have been Pius XII himself who promulgated this, changing the Eucharistic fast from midnight to only three hours before receiving. And so I wrote this piece because I had actually been sent a piece um, written by a friend that made a very compelling argument that, you know, we really do need to be observing the the Eucharistic fast from midnight because the church taught before that to not to receive Holy Communion um, in a state of mortal sin, having not observed the Eucharistic fast from midnight and not being um, not being cognizant of of the real presence, you know, not discerning the real presence was mortal sin not venial sin, it was considered mortal sin to not observe the Eucharistic fast from midnight. And I read this and I'm taken aback. And then I start thinking about it, you know, and I put this in the essay that I wrote that anyone who's ever gotten food poisoning and barfed like three hours after they've eaten, oh my gosh, that that's worse than food that you, you know, just ate a few minutes ago and then barf. I mean, that that's kind of still like food. The stuff that's been in your stomach for three hours is hydrochloric acid, which has broken the food down so that it's pretty much in the beginning phases of being basically sewage. Now, stop. Stop and think about this. What do we believe? What do we believe about the Eucharist? Do we believe in the real presence or not? Do we believe that the Eucharist is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ, and that when we put him into our bodies, he physically reposes there, the church teaches, for something like 15 minutes, which is why you need to be on your knees, staying in the church, talking to him, making your thanksgiving. You don't receive Holy Communion and then then hightail it out the door. In fact, I believe it was St. Philip Neri, was it St. Philip Neri or St. John Vianney? It was probably both of them. I think it was St. Philip Neri would station. I mean, he would see people doing this. He would see people receiving Holy Communion and then just walking out of the church. And so what he did to combat this was he would he would deploy, um, you know, altar boys with candles, like processional candles. And anyone who received Holy Communion and then walked out of the church were the the boys with the with the processional candles were told to follow that person through this person's body physically substantially inside that person's body for 15 minutes and put a swift end to this business of all these people receiving holy communion and running out the door you need to stay and make your thanksgiving now if we if we understand that and acknowledge that How in the world does a three-hour Eucharistic fast, how do we jibe that when we've got hydrochloric acid proto-sewage in in our stomach and that's that's where we put our Lord? And, you know, it's, it's, it's simply a matter of courtesy if we actually believe in the real presence. 
doesn't it seem that you should at least have the courtesy of receiving our Lord into an empty stomach, not into a, not into a slurry of, of disgustingness, which is, you know, pre-digested food in your, in your stomach that, that it just, it doesn't make any sense. And if you stop and think about it, and then you, you couple that with what did the church say up until the asteroid hit? The church said midnight, full stop. Full stop. Midnight. Okay. All right. If, if, if we're serious about this, if we're serious about this, we, we need to go back to that. We need to look at that. We need to, you know, advance in holiness. In fact, I think, I think the, um, what is it? The, the post communion or the secret in today's mass, which is actually the today's Afaria, so it was the, the Mass of last Sunday, repeated, um, it specifically mentioned, you know, advancing in sanctity. Um, and, even, and what I, what it occurred to me, what this also falls under the general category header of, is, you know, the first sorrowful mystery of the rosary, the agony in the garden. Um, what, the fruit of that mystery is, of course, sorrow for sin. And what that encompasses and what that entails is whatever it is that we're doing wrong, if we don't realize it, if we're doing something wrong, and for whatever reason, we don't realize that we're doing something wrong, God, I want to find out. Put it in front of me. Make me aware of what I'm doing that's wrong so that I can correct that and advance in sanctity. And I think this is one of those things, you know. So and again, this is something that I I hit on in another piece um, not too long ago, is that what you've got with these um, generational spirits of, of demonic oppression that started specifically with the baby boomer generation and then cumulatively carries forward to all subsequent generations is this demonic spirit of oppression of indocility. This is a textbook example of that. A person who is indocile is not interested in, in learning about what they're doing that's wrong. They, they are interested in their own will, their own conscience, et cetera, et cetera, which again, anti-Pope Bergoglio just keeps feeding into this, the primacy of conscience, the primacy of conscience. No, 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 no. There is nothing more unreliable in this world than, than the, the conscience of fallen man. Nothing more unreliable. And so if you're gonna, if you're gonna break the shackles of this spirit of indocility, one of the things you need to be asking God for, not just, not only when you pray the first sorrowful mystery, but all the time is let me know what I'm doing wrong. Lead me into, into understanding of what sins that I'm committing that I don't even realize are sins. And, uh, you know, for those of us who are converts, this is a, this is, you know, something that's just we've we've already been beaten over the head with um, and it's already in the forefront of our consciousness. You know, you think back to before you entered the church and and, you know, what you believed about about morality and the Ten Commandments and what we're obliged to do and da, 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 and you just look back and say, oh, my goodness. Well, what you what could was say I con- thinking? You could say converts and those who were not who were raised Catholic but not well catechized. It, it, sure. It's arguable at times which one had it worse. 
Indeed, indeed. Because, you know, a lot of, you know, Novus Ordo Catholics were were contra catechized, contra educated, and explicitly told that that sins weren't sins, so on and so forth. Um, so I think this business of the Eucharistic fast, it, it really is a way to get people to jumpstart this process. And it doesn't just end with the Eucharistic fast. It's God, tell me, show me everything, show me everything. What am I doing that's wrong so I can fix it? Because I don't want to, I don't want to commit any sins. And if I'm wrong about anything, if I'm doing things that are wrong, put it in front of me so that I can stop because I, I don't want to hurt you. I don't want to nail you to the cross. I know that I am. I know that I am. Please put it in front of me. Can you imagine that God wouldn't answer that prayer? I mean, talk about a prayer that that is basically guaranteed to be answered. There it is. Now, he he'll, I'm I have no doubt that he'll answer this prayer. The question is will will we listen when the information is put in front of us? When the correction comes, when you know, when when the information is presented, are we going to be open to it or or will we be indocile? And that's completely up to us. I would say the only thing I would say against that would be that the current rule, depending on whether you want to follow the three hour, the current rule is one hour fast. Mm-hmm. Is that sufficient? Mm-hmm. It's also the current rule that uh, we only have to fast on two days of the, of the, of the year currently. Uh, it reminds me of uh, back when I was in the Navy and I had uh, fleeting thoughts for about five minutes of, of uh, trying out for the SEALs. And somebody was mentioning the, the minimum requirements of what it took to be qualified to even be considered for selection to go to, to SEAL training. And somebody pointed out, for example, if you could only do six pull-ups, which is the minimum requirement, but if you can <laughs> only do six pull-ups, you're not going to make it. No. The minimums are actually are not <laughs> the minimums in this case. That's, that's, to, that's to start the discussion. If you can't, if you can't, if you can't bang out eight. 20, I was going to say, if you can't bang out 20 pull-ups, you're going to have a real hard time in sale training. Mm-hmm. And even if you could do 20, they're going to find a way to break you anyway. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> Six. Give me a break. That's crazy. That, that was the minimum requirement unless they changed it. <sighs> I don't know. Yeah. And you know, it's, the church, the church, obviously, people are going to, don't be legalistic, but they're going to appeal to that and say, the church, granted right now, it's one hour, which is utterly meaningless. One hour is not a fast. This is this is crazy. But, okay, the church, the church says, the Novus Ordo Church says one hour. The church, though, does not in any way discourage the faithful from doing more. There's there's no there's no prohibition on doing more. There's no prohibition on observing the fast from midnight. Of course there isn't. The church is indefectible. The church would never say it's a and it's a sin for you to be fasting, do observing the Eucharistic fast from midnight. Of course not. That's insane. Of course you can do more. Of course you can. The question you have to sit down and ask yourself is. Should I be doing more? And boy, I, I just really don't see how it is that, that we shouldn't be doing more. I, I guess my point, for bringing, now. my point for bringing it up was uh, if you are somebody who is not used to being able to do a fast like that and, you know, okay, you're, you're a stud, so just hold on a second. Uh, let's <laughs> say that uh, on, on Sunday or whenever people go to Mass that uh, they have an evening Mass and, and, and uh, doing a, anything longer than, than five hours may be physically difficult. And that's why I point out that technically 
one hour is the law, three hours is, is recommended. Don't be scrupulous if you are literally getting sick and you need to eat something. That said, you are only required to go to communion one time per year. So That's it, right. You, can, you, can, you don't you can have to, to receive. And this is a very Nova Sordo thing, this notion that, well, if, if, if you don't go up and, and sacramentally receive Holy Communion, then, you know, what, what's the point? Why even bother? Why even go? Uh, what? No, see, there's, there's spiritual communion. Um, and I think I put, I mentioned in my, in my piece, um, the, the whole notion of the faithful receiving frequently, um, and by frequently, I mean more than once to a few times per year. That was an innovation in 1905 of, of Pope St. Pius X, who explicitly encouraged the faithful to receive Holy Communion frequently. Before that, oh my goodness, the faithful didn't receive Holy Communion, but very rarely. St. Catherine of Siena, doctor of the church, only received Holy Communion four to six times per year. And every time she received, she had she did so with the permission of her confessor slash spiritual director every single time she received with permission. Um, so the whole notion that you, you going to mass and, and not sacramentally receiving communion is just beyond the pale. Oh no, 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 no. Um, it, the, the other alternative that you have is that it, you know, if you are going to swoon, although I, I gotta, I just got to throw this in there. A healthy adult should not, should not be at risk of, of passing out from not having eaten a meal in 24 hours. I mean, we have fat, we have functioning livers. Um, your body should be able to, um, should be able to metabolize and burn off fat stores. If, if you're really in danger of passing out and, or you do actually pass out because you haven't eaten in 12, 18, or even 24 hours, I, I'd get to a doctor real quick because you might have some sort of a pre-diabetic condition, some sort of a, a, a metabolism condition. Human beings should be able to cruise through a 24-hour fast with no problem. And the other thing is, if you need to eat something, eat something and then go to mass and just make a spiritual communion. Do you not think that if you make a spiritual communion in that sort of um, in that sort of a situation where obviously our, our Lord knows and you, and you say to him, because it's always very good to talk to him, don't, of course he knows everything and we assume that he knows everything. He knows more than everything. But he also likes it when we talk to them, to, when we talk to him. And so you tell him, Lord, I'm just going to make a spiritual communion today because I, I was really hungry and I went ahead and ate lunch. And I don't, I don't want you <laughs> for, for lack of a better term, and perhaps this is impious, but I, I don't mean it to be. I don't want you in the host splash landing into into my lunch because it's in my stomach still. Um, don't you think that maybe there would be more graces that would come to you if you did it with that sort of a loving mindset and you were you were trying to do your best for him in that sense? Maybe more spiritual benefits would come come to you 
from not receiving Holy Communion sacramentally, but only making a spiritual communion in a, in a circumstance like that. Don't forget about that. It's a very Novus Ordo modernistic thing. Um, and this feeds into the whole, the whole question about why they want to, they're using this as this excuse to open up Holy Communion to, you know, public adulterers and Protestants and everything else, because it's this whole notion that, well, there's just no point to going to mass unless you march up to the front and get your quote unquote participation trophy, which just happens to be the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. Um, so be careful about that. Also remember, um, it may get to the point, and I, I say this to priests all the time, it may get to the point where, you know, you have infiltrators, open sodomites, um, transvestites, all of these people, musloids, people being told to go into Catholic churches to infiltrate masses and to go up and to receive Holy Communion. And you, as a priest, Father, the only way that you can guarantee that um, our Lord is kept safe and that there is no Eucharistic desecration and there's no sacrilege going on and you are not and you are not yourself participating in sacrilege and desecration of the Eucharist is that you don't distribute Holy Communion at Mass. It, it probably is going to get to the point where those of us who are the remnant faithful are going to have to acknowledge or even encourage priests, good and holy priests, do not distribute Holy Communion. Only consecrate the one host for you. Do not consecrate any additional hosts. Do not distribute. That's the only way to keep our Lord safe. Start thinking about this now, because that's where all of this is probably eventually going. And so if we love our Lord and we want to protect him and put him first, we're going to have to forego sacramental communion and only do spiritual communion. So it all kind of feeds together. As times get darker, I would not doubt that that becomes a realistic scenario. Something I thought of as you were talking about, uh, if you can't do a, a fast from midnight or a 24-hour fast without um, having serious medical complications, just the whole notion of uh, following some following Catholic practice as a medical diagnostic. I was just talking with somebody recently about uh, something called the Whole30 Diet, which I don't know if you've heard mm, about this. I've it, heard it's, of this, It's yes. something that mm -hmm. essentially is called a, a reset diet. It's not something you do for a long time. It's, it's only 30 days. And it, it's, it's highly restricted in what you eat. And as the person who was telling me about this was, was describing it's a reset diet and, and it's very restrictive. And as they were describing what you can eat, I couldn't help but notice what you can eat is remarkably similar to the black fast. And every year, back when Catholics used to follow a real fast, we essentially did this whole 30 thing every mm -hmm. single year. And I, I have no idea where this is. Hopefully somebody listening to this knows where to find this reference. But there was, there was some... Um, I don't know what the exact field was. It was like, um, not botanical. It was, it was like some uh, medical historical analysis of humans in Europe during the Middle Ages should not have been able to survive based on the amount of uh, meat and fat products that they ate. Except they had this curious habit every spring that they ate a lot of fish and, and vegetables. Mm. Mm. Wow. 
Funny that. Uh, Coincidence? Point. <laughs> <laughs> I think not, sir. I think not. Great point. But just the idea that if you follow, <laughs> just the natural benefits that come out of following God's laws. I mean, he, he's an infinite intelligence. Did we, did we forget this? Uh, yes, yes. I think it's safe to say, and in fact, we should call that the understatement of the podcast. We have absolutely forgotten that God is an infinite intelligence. I'm not sure if he knows more than everything, because that is a contradiction, what you said, but he does know everything. <laughs> I am going to err on the side of caution. Yeah, let's just say he knows more than everything. <laughs> but you're right. That is mathematically nonsensical. You're absolutely right. Yep. Well, I think that's pretty much a show. I think so, too. Should we wrap it up? I think we should. Okay. Um, let's see. The email address for the podcast, where you can send feedback, comments, fasting ideas, or other medical diagnoses that you can notice from fasting. Email address is podcast at barnhart.biz. Masses for Ann's Benefactors. If you're hearing this podcast, then there was a mass for the benefactors today, including you, if you are a benefactor. I assume you are. Otherwise, why would you be listening? Um, also, I forgot to mention last week, but there is the weekly requiem for everybody who died, whether you're a benefactor or not. So please join your intentions with the priests offering these masses. They are humans. They need our prayers, just like we need to pray for ourselves. Uh, this podcast is a production of Super Nerd Media. If you found something of value in this or, or in previous podcasts and you would like to return some value, please visit supernerdmedia.com slash donate for more details. And that's what Mike and JPF did. Thank you very much for your support. Yes, don't forget um, Super Nerd. Super Nerd and I do not have any financial entanglement at all for obvious reasons. So um, donations that, that come to me come to me and to donate to Super Nerd. And he actually, he uses PayPal. So do go to um, Super Nerd's PayPal platform um, if you find utility. In that vein, in that vein, I've been loath to do this and I've been delaying it and delaying it, delaying it. But but under counsel and uh, and so on and so forth and under counsel and encouragement, I am um, starting a, a campaign and it was inspired, in fact, by super nerds term stale Big Macs. Um, and the 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 genesis of this term is, is that, you know, I have obviously I have I have benefactors and they are they are munificent they tend to to i have a small number of benefactors who te tend to give what i think is just a a munificent average amount per person so much so that sometimes you know donations come in from individuals and i look at that and i think there's there's no possible way that i'm providing that much utility now let's let's put the benefactor masses you know put that aside for a minute this is just me thinking as an economist i look at these amounts of money and say there's no way i'm providing that much utility to this person um and sometimes i look and i the thought occurs to me good grief what what percentage of your monthly rent or mortgage payment was that um are are, are you sure and so you know, one gets gets to thinking about this, and in terms of the podcast and and being under counsel about this, I think Super Nerd and I, and again, the podcast would not happen if it weren't for Super Nerd. Let's let's be one hundred percent clear about that. Um, it's his work and and his his dedication and doing you know doing the technical stuff that I am either not capable of doing or frankly just 
so do not enjoy doing that I wouldn't do it. So, you know, but but we have both proven now we're we're slightly over over a year into the podcasting. This is episode number 53. And that includes the hiatus and and the obvious slowdown um, surrounding the the arrival of the tiny princess. And we, we we're we're putting out podcasts and and they tend to be you know over an hour long each one. And we're serious about doing this. And I think I I really enjoy it. And and I think Super Nerd enjoys it too. And we're going to keep doing it. And so under counsel was put to me. You know you you are doing this and you're providing you're providing a commodity if you will. So it's not unreasonable for you, and it might even be prudent for you to try to develop, um, you know, the whole podcasting paradigm of where you have, you know, a larger number of people, quote unquote, subscribing for a relatively small amount of money. That's kind of the ideal if if you have to if you have to do something like this, that kind of is the the ideal business model. And so the whole name the stale Big Mac, I got to thinking about this, and I asked Super Nerd, and I asked some other people, and I checked around. How much is just a Big Mac, not the value meal, but just a Big Mac, on the McDonald's drive-through menu? And you know the the reports came back in, and it's it's generally between five and six bucks. I think the average worked out to be like five five dollars and twenty five cents. I was thinking to myself, okay. Can I can I supply someone with a product that provides the utility and satisfaction of one stale Big Mac? And you know, if I I think if I if I back way up and run real hard at it and do do a perfect high jump, what's it called, Fosbury flop? I think I might be able to do that. I think I might be able to provide that level of of utility. And so yeah. Um, and when you when you do podcasting and stuff and you have these different platforms, um, especially at the very beginning, I remember getting, you know, these emails from the various podcasting services saying if X percent of your listenership subscribed for X dollars per month, you would make blah, 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 you know. And so I think that if one has to do this, that, that that's, that's the ideal way to do it. Um, try to develop a, a larger subscriber base for a small amount of money. And I, I like to compare and contrast this to um, what we see in like, for example, you know, the, the, the mega super fun rock band churches and the cults like the Legion of Christ and, you know, Scientology and all, all of these other cults and racketeering organizations, what they're going for is they're, they're chasing after rich people. Like, for example, they want to find a thousand donors who will, who will give a thousand dollars a month well, if you've got a thousand people giving a thousand dollars per month, that's a million dollars per month. It ad- it adds up really quick, and you see how these cults get these huge cash flow bases built up, and that just really rubs me the wrong way. And I remember when I lived in Denver, the Novus Ordo Parish that I came into the church through it was a brand new parish. It was built in two thousand and one out in the eastern, southeastern suburbs of Denver. For those of you who know Denver, it was an extreme southern Aurora. So it was in fancy pants, rich Aurora. 
And um, every week in the bulletin, this parish would put the weekly Sunday collection, you know, tallies and how that counted against the year-to-date budget and how far ahead or behind they were the the budget. They put all the financial figures in the bulletin every week. This parish, brand new parish um, in Denver, would average thirty-five thousand dollars a week for in their you know their weekly their weekly offering take. And I I would just look at that and be absolutely gobsmacked, you know, about just how much, how much money was coming into these things and no confessions were ever heard and blah, 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 you know, but, but it was what it was. Um, and so in terms of me and my situation, um, renting, I'm renting obviously, and I'm in a very favorable situation, very favorable location. Um, the, this location is especially sweet because not just because the, the landlord is very good. I can, I pay my rent and all my utilities in cash and the, um, landlord covers everything, which is absolutely ideal. I am within walking distance of both an old mass parish and I have a fallback. I'm also within walking distance of a Ukrainian, Ukrainian Greek Catholic um, parish. So there's also divine liturgy within walking distance of where I am. So that's kind of, that is obviously my big expense. Um, and then secondary to that is food, obviously. But again, I'm eating five meals a week. But, you know, I, I'm not eating Big Macs either. I try to eat good high quality food. And then, you know, anymore, I don't buy clothes. I've got too many clothes as it is. I don't, there's some, um, there's, I don't have a car. That's another huge thing. There's zero car expense, zero gas, zero insurance. I can't tell you how liberating that is. And I look back at how much money I spent on cars and gas over the years and just can't hardly believe it. So there's no automobile expense whatsoever. There is some travel expense when I do travel outside of walking radius, public transport or friends with cars, you know, so going on some sort of a pilgrimage or going to some sort of a meeting or something like that. That's the situation there. I haven't been on an airplane in four years, which is fine by me. Um, so that's kind of the situation. I, I, I don't need a heck of a lot, but what I would like to do and what I've been told under counsel is prudent for me to do is to get out ahead, prepay rent. Um, I really like to be out ahead, of, out ahead of my rent six to 12 months if I can. Um, and also have, you know, some federal reserve notes stashed and, and ready to go in case anything happens. And, and it's true that absolutely anything could happen. Um, you know, we look at what's going on in Hawaii with the earth splitting open and, and volcanic magma spewing out of the earth and just consuming everything in its path. Who knows? Um, earthquakes happen. Um, floods happen. You, you never know when you just have to get up and move and you have to be nimble. Um, and what that means is generally being fiscally responsible and having some savings around you. So I would like to develop that more if I can. Um, and uh, oh, the other question that people have for me is how do I tithe? Um, my tithing is almost entirely in terms of labor, uh, working 
in a church, helping clean, doing things and and offering hospitality as, you know, there are quite a few priests who know where I am and, and some come to visit and, and, and are referred to come and visit me. And I do try to provide kind hospitality to good and holy priests whenever I can. Um, and so that's a form of tithing. And then I will only give cash to um, parishes or to a parish priest if I'm absolutely guaranteed that none of it is going to go to the chancery, that is to, to the local bishop. Because once it once it goes to the chancery, you have absolutely, literally in this day and age, no idea what it could be going towards. It could be going towards any of the Soros organizations. It could be going to homosexual sodomite advocacy. It could be going to you know, um, human trafficking, this, you know, all this migrant and, and people coming across the border, it could be going to that. So I only give actual cash to priests that I know personally, and I have an absolute guarantee that it is not going to go to the chancery. So in terms of tithing, that that is my paradigm. And people were just kind of curious about that anyway. What do you do? Um, that's what I do. So um, we're starting, I'm starting the stale Big Mac campaign and what you're going to start seeing on the website is there's going to be a little picture of a stale, nasty Big Mac and it's going to be a hot link. And so if you click on that, in addition to clicking on the donation button, it'll just take you to my donation page. So if, if in, in your charity, you would like to become one of the kind of podcast slash Barnhart blog subscribers for that, you know, in that stale Big Mac um, uh, quantity of, of donation, then I would be most grateful to you for that. And then, yes, of course, not only all of my benefactors have the holy sacrifice of the mass offered for them every day, but also just supporters. If, if you pray for me, if you, if, you, if you are a person for whom paying your rent or meeting your mortgage is a question for you, you should not be giving me money. If you are an extant donor and you're listening to this, you should not be thinking to yourself, oh my gosh, I'm not doing enough. No, 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 no. Let me disabuse you of that right now. No, no. Please, please understand, I'm, this is kind of just a campaign to maybe generate a wider uh, donation base or subscription base, as they call it, with regards to podcast. That's, that's what's going on here. So please do not, do not feel that you have to give money. And if, if you don't have the money to give, don't. Please, just, just say a prayer for me. Say, say an Ave for me. Say the Lord's Prayer for me, and you're included in terms of in terms of the 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 masses that are offered every day. Because the arrangement I have with God is is that the holy sacrifice of the mass is offered every day for my benefactors and supporters. So if you just if you just say an Our Father for me, or just say just say an extemporaneous improvised prayer if if that's what you prefer to God for me. You are a supporter, and so the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass is offered for you every day as well. And again, circling back to where we started, please don't forget Super Nerd, because this podcast would not happen, period, if not for him. And our financial tracks are completely and totally separate. So don't forget him in all this as well. But don't be confused when you start seeing the uh, little picture of the stale Big Mac showing up on the website now and then. The only thing I would point out is that I'm pretty sure any McDonald's would give you a stale Big Mac for free just for the asking. 
I would put up a, a, a picture of a fresh Big Mac because those are the ones they charge an average of five twenty five for. Really, you think you think they would if you rolled in and they had one of the ones that had been under the heat lamp for two two hours or whatever? They you think they would give you one? If you catch the dude right before he's about to throw it in the trash and you ask him in whatever language he understands, uh, can I have that please? Because I'm hungry and I would like to buy one, but I don't have any money and, you know, give him a sufficiently sad face. They'll give them to you. Okay. All right. Because I've had some Big Macs that I've paid for that have been pretty poor. You know, they've, they've been lukewarm. They're the ones that are badly assembled. So, you know, the cheese is like hanging half off one side. American and cheese then the sauce, <laughs> American cheese, I mean, uh, cheese product, pa- processed cheese product. And then, cheese-like you know, product. cheese-like products. And then the sauce is like lopsided over on the other side. And it's just, it's poorly assembled. I found a picture of one that's, that's poorly assembled and anymore, that's kind of what you end up getting, you know, if, Yeah, but that doesn't mean it's stale. It doesn't mean it's stale. It doesn't necessarily mean it's stale. All right. I, I tell you what, super nerd, you find me a picture of kind of not, not a beautiful, pristine, um, glossy magazine advertisement, big Mac. Cause that's fake. That's fake. Yeah. But that that just, really just, is plastic. A decent, a decent looking big Mac that someone would actually have to pay the $5 and 25 cents for. Okay. Okay. I think I can do that. Cool. And for anyone who's really confused by this whole phrase, stale big Mac, where, where this really came from was we were, um, talking about, uh, Bergoglio, basically. I think that was mm-hmm. the, the real, mm-hmm. the initial vector was just the idea of a topic that we keep beating to death, like it, you know, beating yes. a dead horse. And I extended that analogy by calling it a Big Mac because at one point in time, if you remember correctly, I don't know if it was just Australia or if it was also in the United States, there was some scandal about Big Macs or maybe it was Burger King making, making burgers from horse meat. So you, you beat I the horse to death, keep tenderizing it and then make a, make a hamburger out of it. So that was the whole I genesis remember. of that statement. I remember when I was a little kid, the whole talk about um, uh, McDonald's using kangaroo meat. And so I think maybe that was maybe something that actually happened down in Australia at some point in the late 70s, early 80s. But I do remember that about the the whole kangaroo meat thing. And then, then there was another one where they were, I don't know if this is true or not, but they were apparently at some point trying to mix wood pulp wood cellulose into, into the ground beef mixes as a, as a, was Taco Bell. Maybe it was Taco Bell. Maybe you're right. Maybe you're right. Anyway, it's, it's a vegan delight. (laughs) Oh, we're, we're calling things back now. (laughs) We're early in the pocket. We're back to veganism now. (laughs) All right. Well, that's, that's my little spiel. That's all I have to say. And I think this is the longest wrap up we've had yet. Yes, I'm not surprised. Okay, well then until next week, when we try to go for a longer wrap-up, I am Super Nerd. And I am Anne. Thank you guys and God bless. 